Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Is there such a thing as the perfect kitchen? Well, one model may have come close. It was called the Frankfurt Kitchen. It was designed in the 1920s in Germany. It was sleek, it was supremely functional, and they even chose a paint color, an unconventional blue, on purpose. 
that's like the one unappetizing color, right? So imagine making this beautiful food and then it's in a blue kitchen. But the reason it's blue is because it was thought to repel flies. That was Jennifer Komar Olivares, curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Later on in the show, we'll get a tour of the Frankfurt Kitchen. But first, it's time for a lesson in apples. The good, the bad, and the just plain inedible. Macintosh, the national apple of Canada. This dense curling stone has the refreshing tart kick of an icy northern winter. Unfortunately, this tumor-swollen reindeer nose has perhaps the thickest, most intractable skin of any apple this side of the prime meridian. Final score, 45 out of 100. Horse food. That's comedian and self-proclaimed appleist Brian Frangi. He joins us now. Brian, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You run a website called Apple Rankings. Um, and so just to give our listeners the taste of your style, here's what you've written about the Lucy Glow apple. Quote, the Lucy Glow is a circus freak apple with yellow skin and a red interior that shocks skeptics into submission. Now, here's the good part. Most <laughs> would expect this to taste like an unhealed surgical wound since each bite <laughs> resembles a freshly picked scab. So... Before we go any farther, I think this deserves some amount of explanation on your part, don't you think? Well, uh, well, yes. I mean, the Lucy Glow, I wanted to depict how freakish it looked because it tastes so good. The Lucy Glow Apple, I rank 85 out of 100, which is excellent, even though it looks so insane. The Opal Apple, uh, quote, while the outside may be stained with a toddler's accident, in an ironic twist, the interior of the apple does not brown for quite some time. <laughs> you actually rated this 82 points in excellent. Oh, yes. This is one of my favorite new apples. And I have to say, this is a controversial opinion, but I 100% believe yellow apples are greater than green apples. Okay, so your rating system, yes. you actually, despite the way you write about your apples— you do take this seriously. Oh, 100%. I take my Apple ranking seriously. So I created the 100-point ranking system to give a definitive delineation for every single Apple I had so there'd be no question as to how I felt about a certain Apple. So l let's back way up. I mean, the, the obvious question is why? Why are you <laughs> obsessed with Apple's I'm glad you are because nobody else is willing to say what you say. But what what was the motivation here? Well, yes, I do appreciate the fact that you are recognizing me as a trailblazer yes. speaking truth to apples across <laughs> the world. But I was just fed up with the apple selection that was available to me in grocery stores, particularly, obviously, the Red Delicious Apple which I call coffee grinds in a leather glove. Yeah. It is a 25 out of 100. It's a disgrace. <laughs> and it's sad. It's really sad because there was a time back in the turn of the century when the Red Delicious Apple was considered the number one apple. So what's happened to apples? I mean, my take is that apple growers have really gotten into the super sweet, like in corn. They're less interesting there's less apple flavor. I'm not happy with the Galas <laughs> and the Fujis and the Cosmic Crisps because 
they're just too sweet and they're not complex enough. Mm-hmm. Are you going to agree with me or are we going to have a food fight here? Um, I think we might have a little bit of a food fight, but okay. I do think that the people who grow apples are following what the market demands. Right. And up until the, I'd say the 80s, people cared more about locally grown apples that had a specific flavor and attitude towards their region. And then growers started to mass produce certain apples. And the number one feature is how it looks. A beautiful, handsome apple that has a waxy glow is purchased more often than an old beat up one that might actually taste better. The second thing is crispness. People want crispness. It's like taste has become an afterthought in in the apple world where it's like, okay, does it look good? Does it crisp? Then I don't care what it tastes like. Well, I I love making apple pies. And I have to say, if you make an apple pie with Max and Granny's, which is sort of a typical 50-50 deal, right? I mean, it's it's okay because the Granny holds its shape. Although I have to say, I just want to, you know, for the record, say, you cannot eat a Granny Smith out of hand. It is a vile, <laughs> wretched, horrible flavor. It's not juicy. The, the skin is tough. I have to warn you because you are treading in dangerous territory. Okay. The Granny Smith yeah. apple has an incredible fandom rivaling the Taylor Swift Eras tour. If you disparage the Granny Smith apple, you are inviting a torrent of hate, which I have experienced <laughs> firsthand. People love the Granny Smith, and I don't understand it. For eating out of hand? Eating out of hand. No. Yeah, I don't even... People who bake it in pies, yeah. go ahead. bake. It's a great baking it's, it's apple. It's a great baking apple. But a Granny Smith apple is thick-skinned, dense, yeah. and it makes your gums bleed. There have been studies showing <laughs> that the Granny Smith's acidic profile will make your gums bleed if you eat too many of them. You obviously are not scared of the torrent of hate because you've now no. I mean, it I'm I'm in it. I am deep. So, to enumerate your criteria: taste, crispness, skin, flesh, juiciness, density, beauty, branding, consistency, and cost availability. Well, what does branding mean? I don't I don't quite understand that. Branding has been incredibly important ever since the Pink Lady Apple was trademarked. Apple companies have been focused on making sure that their apples are proprietary. And now it's become a multi-million dollar marketing industry. Like, for example, there's an apple out there that you've probably seen in stores. It's been around for a few years now called the Rocket Apple. There are these little tiny apples that are pre-washed like an astronaut's prefab lunch and placed into a little bottle rocket container that you can open up and snack on without even washing it. Now, that is an incredible amount of marketing for an apple. Now, what about if you got a Cosmic Crisp and you wanted to grow some and you took the seeds out of an apple, that would not produce a Cosmic Crisp, right? No, that is the coolest apple fact that anyone will ever hear. Every single seed and every single apple will produce a brand new variety of apples. So if I took a seed out of a Granny Smith and planted it, a tree might grow that produces a red apple. Because basically every apple tree has been the equivalent of sleeping with the mailman. Or really every mailman in town. Because every apple comes from a flower which is pollinated by a bee whose pollen packet 
comes from God knows where. So no seed will ever resemble the parent. It's a Maury episode every single time. (laughs) But that's not even the cool fact. This is, if you can never get the same apple using seeds from that apple, then how do you get more of the same apple? You graft. Yes. You take rootstock and graft on, right? Yes. You have to clone it by cutting off a little branch or shoot and grafting it onto a living apple tree. In fact, you can graft multiple different apples to the same tree. So that means that every single Granny Smith or Macintosh or Pink Lady, whatever apple you eat today came from the same exact tree as the first and only one that ever existed. I never thought about that. Now, I, I've grown McCowan's, and you say that any flicker of a long-term relationship is quickly dashed as this actually quite disgusting dirtbag, jeez, <laughs> turns into a mealy, tasteless flush sack within days of being brought home. Yeah, but if you pick it fresh off the tree, it's pretty spectacular apple, I think. Yes, it is, 100%. But you have to get it like the day it ripens on the tree. And just if I'm ranking apples for the average consumer, they're going to get usually a mealy flesh sack that is uh, not worthy of being eaten. So what are a couple of apples you think most people can find that are to eat out of hand or probably make the grade? Yeah, so, I mean, first thing I would say is if you're going after a pink lady, you like a sweet tart mix, a little more on the tart side, that's great. But don't be fooled by grocery stores who are selling you Crips Pink and telling you it's the same thing as a pink lady. It is not. The Crips Pink are the B team (laughs) of pink lady apples. But, you know, you can never go wrong with the worldwide favorite available in every grocery store, the Honeycrisp. I mean, the Honeycrisp is a great apple. The downside of the Honeycrisp is that it can be a little expensive, especially because a lot of them are huge. You know, this reminds me of a discussion I had recently in Italy about saltless bread, which Mm. goes back to the 15th century, and the Pope put a tax on salt, and everybody in Umbria decided to not put salt in bread. Saltless bread is is vile. I'm sorry. It's, It's just awful. But if you talk to people in Italy who grew up with it, they defend it to the very bitter end. Yes. But I finally realized that trying to explain why people should not like something they grew up with is really a fruitless exercise. <laughs> yes, fruitless. I mean, if you grew up with a Newtown Pippin or a McCowan, good luck telling people the Cosmic Crisp is on its way. Right. I mean, that's that's why people love the Granny Smith so much. If you try to attack the Granny Smith apple, it is as if I am attacking a person's identity that they developed from childhood. You can't fight against people's emotions when it comes to apples and any type of food. But I'm trying to take the emotions out of the equation. I am making this a scientific, ranked, numbered system. There's no category for, did your grandma use it in a pie when you were at your happiest? (laughs) Brian, thank you for your worldwide tour of apples and especially for your writing, which makes all of this worthwhile. Brian, thank you. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. That was comedian Brian Frangi. You can read more of his Apple rankings at applerankings.com. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, so here's my question. Are we going to get over French cooking? 
And by that, I'm not dismissing French cooking because I think it's fabulous. But do you think we're headed into an age when we finally cut the final (laughs) bonds with culinary education and restaurants being rooted in that tradition? Or do you think that that will endure forever? I think what you're referring to is that French cuisine was considered the reading, writing, and arithmetic to every other thing you did. So all the rules, how to use a knife, all that sort of stuff. Well, let me just say this. We both know, we both agree, particularly with what you're doing with Milk Street, that every country has its own way to approach things, and they're all equally valid. I don't think French cuisine... Listen, I love it. I think it's fantastic. There's a reason why it's been popular. I don't think it's going to continue to dominate. I think everybody's looking for new tastes, new excitement, new places to go, new toys to play with in the kitchen. So, no, I don't think it's going to continue to dominate. I still love it, though. You know, I'll say two things. When I travel the world, so many times I ask people that question, and 90% of the time they said they were trained in a French restaurant. Well, I mean, which, which is what has been. But the problem with French cooking, it seems to me, is it's devoid of spices. It's devoid of chilies. It's devoid of fermented sauces. It has an ingredient list that's fairly finite, and therefore its cooking was appropriate for that. But if you go across the world, people have so many more tools to play with. No, that's so, true. But, but the techniques are still solid. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's take a call. Yep. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Tom Egan in Lambertville, New Jersey. How can we help you? So uh, after our last chat about my baking problems with my well water. You're the guy with the haunted well, right? I'm the guy with the haunted yeah. well. Yeah, okay. Fill us in a little more. What is it you're yeah. trying to make and having a hard time yeah, with? Yeah, g- give us a recap. G- yeah, yeah, give us a recap. The recap is that I've been baking for a number of years, but just in the last year moved to a new house. And it's the first time I'm baking with well water, particularly hard water, and so a water softener. So the water chemistry is very different than anything I've used when I've lived in a city with a municipal water supply. Right. Our first few bakes, we had very under-fermented dough. Based on our last conversation, I basically took the Pouliche recipe that I usually use, which is 330 grams of flour, 330 grams of water, and then a pinch of yeast, Right and trying that with three different water sources. Hmm. So because I was only baking one loaf of bread, I wanted to divide it into three. So divided the flour by three. I did 110 grams of the well water with the softener, the well water with the softener bypass, so the hard water, and then another one with bottled water. And? My findings were a little different than I expected them to be. The last thing I had to divide by three was my pinch of yeast. When I grabbed my pinch of yeast, I said, well, how the heck do I divide this by three? (laughs) So I started doing a little more research on how much is really a pinch, right? Long story short, what I realized is, you know, what I'm doing in my typical ferment is I'm grabbing a physical pinch of yeast from the jar of yeast, whereas that seems to be, by the measure of what a pinch is, seems to be pretty light. It's a half teaspoon you should use, right? Something like that? The most consistent answer I found was a sixteenth of a teaspoon is a pinch. When I basically used more yeast in each of these experiments, by the next morning, they all had risen the same. Didn't we mention that as a possibility? Adding more yeast? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you you know, when I do poulish, I use, you know, a cup each water flour and I use half a teaspoon of yeast. That's obviously a lot more than a pinch. So that's what I'm used to. But let's get to the good part. So you had the water that was through the softener, 
Does that add salt to it? It does, yeah. It adds sodium. Okay. And then how did that do versus the hard versus the bottled water? In my little experiment, they were all the same. Oh. And what I've realized since, when I've done my pre-ferment now, when I've done the pouliche, I got one of those goofy little sets that has little measures for a pinch, right. a dram, and you know whatever other <laughs> old-timey measures are out there. And I've basically found that by using a little more, right. it ferments just fine now. So my suspicion is that at that very low amount, when I was using like a physical pinch, it's possible that the amount of sodium added right. to the, it, it to killed the water the yeast the softener. Right. Yeah. As you know, when you make bread, you leave the salt out in, off. in the first part because yeah. it'll retard the action yeah. of the yeast. Yeah. I think that's... Yep. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds right to me, Sarah. I yeah, mean, that, that no, does that's sound a happy good. ending. Yeah. I'm just sitting here nice, listening. Yay. Nice test. One way or another, I got an answer, right? I think the point is that he didn't need us. You're giving me way too much credit here. We got lots of credit to give. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're stuck in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, this is Elizabeth calling in from New Orleans. Oh, we love New Orleans, you lucky (laughs) woman. But how can we help you today? Well, I'm actually calling with a question about cranberry sauce, of all things. Okay. Um, I was thinking about how much fun it would be to have it throughout the year. And I was looking at the ingredients in the recipe, and it reminded me an awful lot of a preserve, something that could be canned or jarred or maybe even frozen. So I was wondering if you had any ideas on how I could take just a basic cranberry sauce recipe and turn it into some sort of preserve I could have year-round. Well, it is sort of a preserve to begin with, right? I mean, you tell mm-hmm. me your recipe. Sure. It's just a, a standard package of fresh cranberries, about a half cup of water. You bring the cranberries to a boil after you've cleaned and sorted them. And then as you hear the popping, you put in about a half a cup of granulated sugar and let it sit. Yeah. Well, all of the things you said before would work, meaning it certainly would freeze nicely. Just freeze it in smaller amounts. And you could also can it. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to can it. I'm scared to death of killing people. But there's all sorts of wonderful websites. You could just go to the government USDA website or the ball jar website, you know, uh, get a good canning book. And absolutely, there's no reason you shouldn't. You should. You know, that's one of those things. We're so spoiled. We're used to getting our fruits, Mm -hmm. you know, 365 days of year or berries or whatever. But cranberries have a season and then it's over, period, end of sentence. And you can freeze them in bags, so you could do that too, but you've already made this delicious sauce. Why not have that handy? I mean, it's good with so many things. But anyway, let's see what Chris has right. to say. It's the only food where I use the recipe at the back of the bag. I do too. I love and, it. And, and I add a quarter teaspoon of salt. You should always put a little salt in it. Yes. But okay. the, the one thing you said, it was I don't think it would make a big difference, but you, I always cook the sugar with the cranberries I and do water. Too. I don't uh-huh. add it at the end. Okay. It would probably dissolve fine, but I think if you heated the sugar, it might change the viscosity of the preserve when you're done. And you could definitely freeze it, and there's no problem at all with it. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, no problem. I agree with you it on works. that. All, all right. right. Take okay, care. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye-bye, Take Elizabeth. Care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Bruce. How can we help you? I have a recipe for these dry biscuits that I use on camping trips. 
And the dryness of the biscuits is an essential element because that's what allows them to keep good for weeks. Part of the cooking process is actually leaving the oven for 12 hours at 200 degrees. So they're really dry. I mean, there's a good bit of fat and protein in them in the form of eggs and buttermilk and butter. And the flavor comes from vanilla and anise extract or vanilla and almond extract, cinnamon. It's another version. But both of them, the flavor is kind of weak. I've tried doubling the quantities of those key flavor things. and It really seem to change it. And I've been trying to figure out if there's some way, I mean, I'm guessing that the weakness of the flavor comes from the lack of moisture or maybe the drying process evaporates it out. So I'm trying to figure out if there's some way I could sort of give them a bit more flavor because they're otherwise quite good. Yeah, I think you're on to it. The problem isn't with your ingredients. The problem is if something's in the oven for 12 hours at 200 degrees or whatever it was, those flavor molecules are long gone. Mm-hmm. You know, vanilla extract, for example, is 35% alcohol. You're just getting rid of all those flavor molecules and ending up with a product that'll last for weeks. But if you would underbake those biscuits, right, and you weren't worried about how long they would last, they probably yep. have a ton of flavor. I mean, you're sacrificing flavor for longevity. Sarah? I wonder if it would make a difference if you used vanilla paste. You can get seeds from the inside of the vanilla pod and scrape them out. So that's one thought. But then another thought was maybe instead of using anise oil, use anise seed or toasted fennel that's been ground. Like toast your spices and grind your spices to up the flavor Mm. before you ever put them in. I don't know if that will make a difference, but I think it's worth a shot. No, I think that's a very good idea. I think if you had toasted spices, grounds, and then put them in with your batter, your dough, something mm-hmm. like cardamom, for example, you know, would be really wonderful in this. Yeah. Toast the cardamom a bit and then grind it up. Yeah, yeah grind it up in a more pestle or a little coffee you know, grinder. Yeah. I think that's an excellent idea. Cardamom is a wonderful flavor and would taste yeah. quite good. So. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It goes really well with baked goods. Mm-hmm. So, Bruce, let us know how it goes. Sounds good. I will we'll give it a try and see what happens. Thanks, Terrific. Bruce. Appreciate it. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio, coming up the history of kitchen design. That's up right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just 
gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. So let's talk about kitchens. You know, they're hardly ever designed with a cook in mind. An efficient kitchen should offer solutions for common cooking problems, like the step-saving kitchen introduced in 1949. To the left of the mixing counter is the vegetable preparation and dishwashing center. With knife rack and utensil cupboard at the right, vegetables in front of her, and sink at the left, this worker has a step-saving setup for preparing vegetables. That's a clip from a U.S. Department of Agriculture ad for their step-saving kitchen. The mid-century was a big era for kitchen innovation, but it turns out some of the first functional kitchens were actually designed in Germany back in the 1920s. We're joined now by Katie Thornton to share the story of the Frankfurt Kitchen, which he originally reported for the 99% Invisible podcast earlier this year. Katie, welcome to Milk Street. 
Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm happy to be here. So before we get into all the details of this Frankfurt kitchen, let's back up and talk about the German kitchens of the late 1800s. So what did a middle-class kitchen actually look like at that time? Yeah, that's such a great question, because I think in order to understand how the Frankfurt kitchen comes around, we really need to understand kind of what it was a response to. And in truth, we don't know very much about kitchens before the World War One era. You know, kitchens, they were sort of hodgepodges of whatever surfaces you could slap together in a room. It was often a big open fire or possibly a wood stove, a big wash basin that you would have to haul into the room to sort of wash dishes, possibly also do laundry. It was kind of just another room in the house where all of this really unpleasant work happened. And all of this of course, is not really a coincidence. You know, at this time, kitchens were primarily the domain of women and of laborers, household laborers. And so they did not receive much attention from architects and designers. So let's get to the inventor who finally did pay attention. Uh, who was she? Margarete Schutelahatsky was an Austrian architect. Um, she designed the Frankfurt kitchen, largely considered the first modern kitchen. Um, she had worked on some public housing projects in Austria when she was in her 20s. And in her late 20s, she was called by Ernst May, who was in charge of what was called the New Frankfurt. It was a large municipal project after World War One that was intended to get people housed and get them housed quickly. And so she was tapped to come over to Germany and spearhead the design of the kitchen. And her whole idea was that if she wanted to work to advance women's equality, women needed to be able to get their housework done as quickly as possible and move on with their lives. And so what she did is she designed motion studies and she ended up laying out the design of the kitchen such that every movement was as streamlined as possible. So let's talk about some specifics. I mean, let's be honest, it was a very small kitchen, at least the one model I've seen pictures of. So no matter how you designed it, you weren't taking a lot of steps to get from one part to the other. That's um, true. <laughs> but there's some really cool things here. Uh, the cook box, yes. which is sort of like a crock pot, but you could use it to keep food warm, but you could also use it to actually cook food very slowly, right? Yeah, exactly. To slow cook grains, to slow cook meats. You know, a lot of the Frankfurt kitchens used electronic appliances. And that was quite a new phenomenon at the time. It was also quite expensive. And so there were all of these little sort of design techniques that were used to save on the cost of electricity. So if you were to use your stovetop to cook, you know, an item in the short term, you could use the residual heat in the cook box to slow cook meats or to slow cook grains that you could then have for later. There's another element of electricity saving design that I thought was really interesting. If you look at the top of the Frankfurt kitchen on the ceiling, there is almost like a like a track light and the single light bulb could be moved throughout the kitchen. And so it enabled you to have your one light bulb do a lot of work for you. And the measuring cups, 12 identical cups with spouts that fit into cubby holes in the wall. I love this. Each labeled with the name of a different ingredient. Yeah, rather than having a large bag or a large bin of flour on the ground that a woman working in the kitchen would have to then lift up 
out of this, you know, presumably low storage place where it would be susceptible to mice and other things like that. It had, you know, a squared off storage bin for different grains and different foodstuffs that also had notches within the unit itself to show you how much you have poured out. So all of a sudden, you go from having a bag and a measuring cup and a secondary bowl and all of this sort of back-breaking work to pulling one storage bin out of the wall in front of you and just pouring the contents into your single bowl. Yeah, it was uh, two things about it. It was beautiful. I mean, it is. It, it, it reminded me of the old post office little boxes with the windows. Yes, um, exactly. And the other thing is, I said, like, why don't we do that now? I mean, that was <laughs> just, what a great idea. I mean, I have to go find my rye flour, my whole wheat flour, and my cornstarch and everything else. They're all in different bags and different places. And, you know, it's that's the story of history like two steps forward, four steps back. <laughs> Right. Um, It's so funny. I mean, the Frankfurt Kitchen in many ways is both sort of revolutionary and at this point very mundane because so many of its components really were so seminal that they became quite normalized. But there are some things that I would absolutely love to have in my IKEA kitchen, which is very much a descendant of the Frankfurt Kitchen. And then this is a nice little Jetsons touch. There's a button on the floor that closes the pocket door. There are so many little Jetsons features. Like there's one of the other ones that I really wish we still had in addition to those 12 identical cubby storage containers slash measuring cups was there's a chute into the countertop. First of all, I should just say the entire idea of a single height, long, continuous countertop was really revolutionary at this time. Um, But within that countertop, Near the sink, there's a a gap, a small hole where you can slide your food scraps in. And on just below the, the surface of the counter is this small rectangular box. You can pull it out from underneath the counter and just pour your food scraps directly in the trash. So what eventually happens to her and what happens to this Frankfurt kitchen? Did the innovations she came up with stick around? Did it influence future kitchen designs? You know, what happened? Yeah, so it did absolutely influence kitchen design in the next generation. But the Frankfurt kitchen itself was only produced from 1926 until 1930. This was interwar Germany. And as the Nazi party gained power throughout the late 1920s, they ended up cutting a lot of the public housing initiatives across Germany. And Margareta Schutelohatsky ended up leaving Germany with Ernst May, who was the planner and architect in charge of the new Frankfurt initiative, the broader municipal project, um, along with her husband, who was also an architect, and I believe 15, 14 or 15 other architects and urban planners. They ended up fleeing to the Soviet Union. So in many ways, she was not necessarily given accolades early on as the designer of this very, very influential kitchen. But her designs and her concepts of saving space within the housing unit very, very much lived on. And you see echoes throughout Europe and throughout the U.S. Um, There were a lot of different kitchen designs that were really sort of premised on this idea of making life easier for the woman who was in the kitchen. So she moves to Russia, but then what? Does she spend the whole rest of her life there? No, she has a very 
very interesting trajectory. So she moved to the Soviet Union in 1930, and she ended up working there. The sort of record of her work is, is a little bit ambiguous in this period, but it seems like she and her husband, um, Wilhelm Schutte, helped design collective kitchens in the Soviet Union, and she was also designing nurseries. So other things that were sort of in, at this point, crudely seen as the women's realm. Um, they ended up, her and her husband ended up leaving there in 1937, and in 1938, they moved to Istanbul. And ultimately, she joins the clandestine communist party, and she works with this anti-fascist resistance cell. And so she actually, mm. she's sent on a mission to Vienna, and she ends up being captured and, you know, this is back to her home country of Austria, where she's from. Um, and she ends up being captured and imprisoned in various prisons and labor camps in Austria and Germany for four years. Um, she's in solitary confinement for a lot of that time. Hmm. And um, finally, she is freed by American soldiers in 1945. And a few years after that, she, she does return back to her home in Austria. So what happened after the war? Yeah, so after the war, there was still deep anti-Semitism among many Austrian citizens and leaders. And so she was not necessarily warmly received when she came back. You know, she was somebody who had worked resisting the Nazis, you know, while she was overseas. She also maintained allegiance to the Communist Party of Austria for the rest of her life. And then especially against the backdrop of, of the 1950s and the Cold War, um, she was really sort of shut out from work. So even though she had all of this experience with public housing and kitchen design and also designs for children and children's well-being, she only got two contracts from the city of Vienna after she returned back. And so she ends up mm. doing a lot of her work in private homes and doing big public projects in China and in Cuba and in the Soviet Union. Well, it's just a great example of um, knowing history is so important because you look back and, and think, oh, the 1920s, somebody sat down and really thought about how to design a kitchen and most of that has been lost, you know. I mean, I would love to work in that kitchen. Yeah, right, you know. absolutely. You know, like at the time, there wasn't very many models for efficiency. And so she looked to ships and she looked to train cars to figure out how to maximize mm. space in the kitchen. And I think that that's really telling of, of her motivations. Uh, Katie, thank you. A fascinating story about uh, the Frankfurt Kitchen and what we have forgotten since 1926. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for talking with me. That was reporter Katie Thornton. You can hear more of her reporting on the 99% Invisible episode, The Frankfurt Kitchen. Have you ever noticed that industrial design just keeps getting worse? Back in the 60s, designers knew the dials were the best and easiest way to tune a car radio, maybe adjust your stovetop burner, or even use the thermostat in your house. Today, you need a PhD just to set your oven. And please don't get me started on dishwashers. Why are there so many options? And why don't they have a little green light to tell you if it has been run or not? You have to be a kitchen detective to suss out whether the dishes are clean or still dirty. So let's face facts. There was a time post-World War I when designers really did understand kitchens, a chair to sit at a low counter, 
overhead lighting that moved on a track, a cook box for slow all-day cooking, wall storage for grains and flowers with built-in measuring cups, and even a button on the floor to close the closet door. So please, let's be honest. It really is game over. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe, Indian Spiced Smashed Potatoes. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I visited London and Paris a few months ago. Uh, and one of the stories I was after was Indian cooking in London, especially the way it's been adapted, which is really interesting. But I went to Dishoom. It's a series of really wonderful restaurants in London. And I met with our head of R&D, former head chef Rishi Anand. And on the menu for lunch were gunpowder potatoes, which are hmm. potatoes which he essentially grills and then serves with gunpowder spices and makes the spices and some fresh juice and herbs. It was delicious. And it was delicious because it was something simple with a great spice mix. It was just transformative. Yeah, this is a kind of a classic Milk Street recipe, right? It's what we do here. We take something that seems familiar or simple, like potatoes, right? And give you ways to enhance it or make it much more interesting and exciting. In this case, we're going to actually smash our potatoes. So we're going to add a lot of textural elements here. I think Chef Anand grills his potatoes whole, then splits them open and kind of roughs them up, doesn't fully smash them. We fully smash our potatoes, and then we toss them with spiced butter. And that's where that gunpowder name comes from. It's a spice blend. And there's all different variations on this spice blend. I think Chef Anand's version is from the Parsi cuisine, which is Persian Indian. So there's whole cumin, coriander, and fennel seeds that are coarsely ground. Two different types of masala, garam masala and chaat masala, which are spice blends in themselves. And then chili powder and fenugreek. And all of that gets tossed with these potatoes. So that's a lot of spices. So we found we wanted to kind of pare that down a little bit to highlight our favorite flavors. And that was the cumin, coriander, and fennel, and that fenugreek. And if you can find the fenugreek, I really, really recommend it. It adds a really distinctive, almost maple flavor to the potatoes. Really, really different and kind of adds something just kind of truly unique here. It's interesting how all of a sudden, you know, spices that you weren't familiar with now sort of become part of the repertoire. And the last thing I'd say is also that coarsely ground spices, you know, that difference between powdered ground spices and whole or cracked spices. It does make a huge difference in flavor. And also the feel in your mouth is just great. Right, exactly. I mean, you've got so many textures here. We've smashed the potatoes. So you've got creamy and crispy parts of the potato. You've got heat from some jalapeno. And then you've got some crunch from these coarsely ground spices. All of these spices get bloomed in some melted butter to really enhance their flavor. And then that butter spreads all over the potato. So you're getting all of that spice flavor all over the potato. We add in a little bit of fresh scallions and cilantro for some herbal elements. And then I think at Dishoom, it was served with the classic raita, Mm -hmm. Indian condiment with yogurt and cucumber. If you don't want to do that, you can just squeeze a little bit of lime juice over the top. It really adds a nice kind of tangy balance to the earthy spices, which is a really nicely balanced dish. 
So something simple, something new, gunpowder potatoes or Indian spice mashed potatoes, part of my regular repertoire. Lynn, thank you. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for Indian spiced smashed potatoes at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Mill Street Radio. After the break, Adam Gopnik experiences culinary alchemy. That's coming right up. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, it's Dave from Alexandria, Virginia. On a recent episode of Milk Street Radio, I heard a question about how to keep pizza from sticking to a pizza peel. Chris suggested using semolina flour to lubricate the peel. My trick, which eliminates the mess of semolina flour in my oven, is to use parchment paper. I form the pizza right on the parchment, then transfer the pizza and parchment to the baking steel using my peel. After about two minutes, the bottom of the pizza is set and releases easily from the parchment. Then immediately slide the pizza back onto the steel while holding onto the paper. The pizza slides right off and finishes cooking perfectly since it's now on the steel and there's no semolina mess. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's hear the latest from our friend, Adam Gopnik. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Christopher. How are you? I'm good. I'm particularly well, I should tell you, because I am finally back cooking in my kitchen, and I have been away from it for more than a month, which is about the longest break in cooking that I think I've had in 25 years. And so coming back to the kitchen after being away from it, uh, I took a kind of new registry, took stock in a new way of what it is we love about cooking. And do you know what it is more than anything else, Christopher? Uh, Oh, boy. I could come up with 20 or 30 things. I, I, I would say it's the joy of using your hands to do something useful. That would be my very Vermontese version. Uh, that, that's a beautiful one. I, actually, and of course, it's profoundly true. One of the things we love about cooking, especially if we do mind work all day, as writers are condemned to, is exactly that our attention shifts from our heads to right. our hands at, at 6 p.m. But the thing that struck me when I went back to my kitchen was the pleasure of transformation, mm. just the way things changed in your pan under the force of heat is genuinely a kind of everyday magic whose power I had forgotten simply by having become so habituated to it. And I began making lists as I went back to cooking of what were the most satisfying, the most philosophical, and the most mystical of those everyday kitchen transformations. I wonder if you'd be interested in hearing me enumerate each. You've turned into an alchemist <laughs> exactly. in your dotage, which I like. Exactly. Well, that <laughs> is alchemy. That's the alchemy yeah. that is available to us. So the most satisfying transformation in the kitchen, I find, is, and this will startle you, rhubarb. Rhubarb is something that is completely inedible and unappetizing when you get it. 
And yet, all you have to do is chop it into pieces. You don't even have to add water to it, only a minuscule bit of sugar. And under the pressure of heat, it transforms itself into one of the most velvety, complex, and intriguing of all forms. In our family, the ideal dessert is rhubarb fool. You simply mingle stewed rhubarb with whipped cream, and there's nothing better in the world. Well, if I may push back, please. rhubarb is about disintegration. It's zombie-like. It goes from this crisp, I I think it's gorgeous in the garden, and then it devolves into this gooey mass, which tastes great, but from a visual, it's sort of like what happens after you get buried. You know, it doesn't, you're not going in the right direction with rhubarb, you know what I mean? I hear you, but nonetheless, I find that Hugely satisfying. Now, the most philosophical kitchen transformation is, of course, the classic chopping and sautéing onions, because that's the most essential one. It's the one you can't avoid. And it's the most philosophical, of course, because it is the one where you're taking something that is actively and aggressively caustic and unappealing that brings tears out into your eyes that you don't like doing and turning it into something that is sweet and essential. And it left me with a question, which you may well have the answer to, Chris, which is why is it that with all of the extraordinary breeding and changing and even genetic engineering that's gone on, why has no one been able to breed out the substance in onions that makes you cry? I have an answer to that. Ah. Guess which onion turns out to be the sweetest when cooked, white, red, or yellow? Um, I'm going to guess the white. Yellow. And the reason is the more sulfur compounds you have in the raw vegetable, they transform and become sweet. So the most acidic, the most sulfurous, the most objectionable raw onion turns out to be the sweetest when cooked. Ah. So you want to get rid of the one thing that lends itself to the greatest transformational power of the onion, which is those sulfurous compounds. Well, isn't that exactly right? There we are. That's very philosophical. (laughs) Right. The onion is the philosophical transformation, exactly because, as you have now explained to me, you have to have sulfurous and caustic onions in order to have sweet, sustaining onions. (laughs) And now, what do you you know what I think is the most mysterious, if not the most mystical, of those transformations I felt as I was going about my everyday work in the kitchen? Something with eggs, perhaps? That's a good choice, and certainly there is something about scrambling eggs that is like rhubarb. You can't believe you're going from the raw to the cooked state so simply and so pleasingly. But for me, it's mixing anchovies and garlic Hmm. because the anchovy, which is a distinct flavor and is a powerful little animal you've got in the pan, just vanishes, just melts away and turns into this wonderful and mysterious flavor, which no one can quite identify in your marinara sauce or in your puttanesca sauce, but which is absolutely essential to its effect. Well, it's the same thing as as using like a fish oil or something like that, which, uh, you know, has deep umami to it. Yes. But once it's cooked, it loses the fishiness. You know, fish sauce is, good fish sauce is not fishy. And the same thing, you're, you're right, two anchovy fillets with the onions to start a stew or a soup is a brilliant way of developing, you know, foundational flavor. It is. And yet people who don't like anchovies will never know that the anchovies were there. They are anchovies when they start, and they are then mysterious agents of flavor when they're finished. So I vote for the anchovy as the most mysterious or mystical of the kitchen transformations. Now, follow me, if you will. I realized that the subject that I was 
Faun was one of the classical subjects of poetry and myth, and of course the greatest poem ever written about the act of things changing from one state to another is Ovid's Metamorphosis. So I thought, I wonder what Ovid has to say about the transformations of food. Um, It turns out, did you know this? I was unaware of it, Christopher, that Ovid was one of the great evangelical vegetarians of antiquity, that he made the case passionately and strongly against uh, meat-eating. And yet, and here's the fascinating thing, his case rested on the idea that the transformation by fire of all of the vegetable world was intrinsically beautiful, but that you couldn't transform by fire the animal world. You could only rip it apart with your raw teeth and hands. Are you, are you up to hearing a little Ovid? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> You're an actor, sir. Go ahead. I shall. This is Ovid as translated by Arthur Golding. You have both fruits of trees and grapes and herbs right good. And though some be harsh and hard, yet fire may make them well, both soft and sweet. You may have milk and honey, which does smell of flowers of thyme. So there you see Ovid making the case that the key to being a civilized person is that we take vegetables and with fire we make them well, both soft and sweet. Isn't that beautiful? Adam Gopnik, you are a mysterious agent of change. <laughs> you you seek to transform me every time you speak. I'm not I'm not sure I agree with Ovid about that because I think meat does get transformed. But thank you so much uh, for this lesson in philosophy. Thank you, Chris. See you soon. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at the New Yorker. His latest book is The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. That's it for today. Please don't forget you can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all of our live stream cooking classes, and learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Simple. Check us out on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.